In chapter 1, last week we finished up chapter 1, and in that whole chapter we saw Paul, uh, in that chapter, give thanks for the work that he had done in the life of these Thessalonian believers. Before they heard the gospel, if you remember, these were pagan idol worshippers. But then they heard the gospel preached of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, and they believed with all their heart, and now they were living lives, laboring for the gospel, and hopefully waiting for the return of Christ. What a dramatic change in the lives of, of people. And if that's not a dramatic change enough, they do all this with joy in spite of being afflicted for their faith in the gospel. Paul also helped us to see when you witness such a dramatic change in people's lives, you don't thank the people themselves, but instead you thank God for His grace at work in their lives. Paul says, we give thanks to God always for all of you. Paul is overjoyed to remember what God has done in the life of these believers at Thessalonica. But now in chapter 2, as we read this, there's a change that takes place here. and We might be a little confused. Paul's been talking about all these great things here in chapter 1. Now, what is he doing here in chapter 2? Well, Paul's actually defending the ministry that he had with the Thessalonians. Evidently, as we read this, we'll discover that Paul's been accused of having false motives and, and a self-centeredness, a conduct that he had there at the ministry among the Thessalonian believers. It appears that those people who had followed Paul around from town to town were still causing Paul problems. If you'll remember, before we began our study in 1 Thessalonians, we read from the book of Acts, chapter 17. And we saw that Paul's time in Thessalonica ended there in sort of a humiliating way. There were these legal charges brought against Paul. Uh, these Jews who were following him around from town to town, they, they created this mob and there was sort of like a riot in town. And it was so serious that Paul had to leave town in the middle of the night. And so Paul's critics have taken advantage of this disappearance. Paul suddenly disappears. He's gone. They're discrediting the ministry that Paul had. They started, uh, if you will, like a smear campaign, like you do in politics sometimes. That's sort of like we watch uh, the commercials on TV, and they're just trying to smear the guy, whoever his opponent is. That's what they were doing to Paul. And these people are saying a whole lot of things, a variety of things, to try to undermine the credibility of Paul and the ministry he had at Thessalonica. It appears... They've been saying things sort of like this. Paul is not genuine. You know, he ran away in the middle of the night, and you haven't seen or heard from Paul since. What's up, what's up with that? Why is Paul doing that? There's a good sign that Paul wasn't really sincere in what he was doing here with you. He's just another phony teacher. He's just another charlatan, just another swindler that's come through town. That's all Paul is. Paul has done what he's done here just because there might have been a little money to be gained, a little prestige, and he might have gained a little popularity among people. That's why he's done what he's done. Why is it that Paul came here and he just sort of in the middle of the night tucked his tail and he, he ran away? That's what they're saying about Paul. You, you can't trust Paul. He doesn't care one thing about you. He's abandoned you. He's more concerned about himself or he wouldn't have ran away. So Paul is defending himself here in chapter 2, in parts of chapter 3. And that's why when you read this, you're thinking, why is Paul making these statements? Now you're going, okay, Paul is defending his ministry. And if you're like me, you're going, what does that have to do with me? This is in the Bible. It obviously has something to do with my life as a believer. What does it have to do with me? And you're sitting here in the pew going, okay, Paul's defending himself. What does that have to do with me? 
In describing and explaining his ministry here, Paul's actually providing for me as a pastor and you as those who serve in the church with an example of how we're to do ministry in the local church. He sort of gives us a philosophy of ministry here. He's saying, this is what I did, but this is why I did what I did. That's philosophy of ministry. And I know that's a big word, but it simply means, what's your goal and how are you going to do? How are you going to accomplish that goal? This is valuable material for us uh, to reflect upon as we look at our goals as a church and the motives for why we're doing what we're doing as a church. And the main idea of this text today will simply be this. What faithful ministry looks like. What faithful ministry looks like. So if you will, look at verses 1 and 2 with me. And I'll read those right quickly. Paul says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So in verses 1 through 2 here, if you're wanting to outline this, it's this. The genuineness of ministry. That's what Paul is going to talk about. The genuineness of ministry in verses 1 through 2. And he gives two proofs here for the genuineness of his ministry. Notice in verse 1, the first proof, he says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. Now remember, why would Paul make such a statement? Well, some people have said... Paul's ministry to you was worthless. It was empty. That's why he uses the word vain there. The word vain has the idea of failure. But notice Paul tells the Thessalonians, he says, You know, brothers, he's pointing to the Thessalonians' own salvation, their own repentance from sin and faith in Christ to prove his point. Paul's accusers were saying to the Thessalonians that they believed Paul, and what they believed about Paul was worthless. It it meant nothing at all. What they believed was all in vain. It was without a purpose. What Paul did here among you was absolutely worthless. It meant nothing. Paul had ulterior motives. He He was looking out for himself. He cares nothing about you. And Paul is responding to that. Notice what he says here. He responds by saying, our coming to you was what? Paul says it wasn't in vain. It was, it was not without purpose. Look at your own lives, Thessalonians. Look how the gospel transformed you. How the gospel took you from serving idols to serving the true and the living God. If Paul's coming to them was based on his own gain his, or error, how could they explain the work of God in their lives? Paul's saying, if I came here with an ulterior motive, if it was all about me, if I was just here for my own purposes... Look at your own lives. Look how God has changed you through the preaching of the gospel and how you turn from all these idols to serve the living and the true God. He's saying the genuineness of ministry is looking to see the transformation that takes place in people's lives. That's how we measure, uh, if you want to use the word success, in ministry is we look and we see how the gospel is transforming people's lives. It takes them from serving idols to serving the true and the living God, but it not only leads them there, but it continues to transform them, make them followers, disciples of Christ. And Paul is saying, my ministry was not in vain. Look what the gospel did to you. And that's how we measure our ministry here. It's not in vain we look and we see the transformed lives that God has has taken place through the gospel. Notice Paul's second proof in verse 2. He says, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had 
boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Paul is saying that he was willing to preach the gospel in spite of what? Conflict or opposition. The accusers may be, may be saying something like, you know, look as soon as, as soon as things got tough here, what did Paul do? He bolted, he got out of town. What's the old saying? When the, uh, the going gets tough, the tough get going. Well, Paul was just the opposite, they said. Paul tucked his tail and he ran out of town. And Paul's saying, no, no. He says, I'd already been beaten up in Philippi. If I were a guy that didn't want to get beaten up, I would have looked for another line of work. Okay? He's saying, remember Philippi. In fact, he says in verse 2, I came to you knowing there was going to be conflict. He said, I came knowing it was going to happen. You know, Thessalonians, I came and proclaimed the gospel knowing I was probably going to be beaten up and even thrown in jail once again. Notice in verse 2. He says, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Paul goes on preaching knowing what has happened to him in Philippi. Remember we talked about that. Him and Silas were what? Beaten up, thrown in jail for preaching the gospel, and they had to leave town. And Paul leaves there and goes to Thessalonica, and he knows that the same thing can possibly happen. Listen, Paul's just gotten out of jail, and I'm sure the wounds from his beating haven't even healed up yet. And he goes to the next town, and what does he do? Proclaims the gospel, knowing the same thing may happen again. What was it that made Paul do this? Now, you're sitting here going, I love Jesus, and I love the gospel, but I'm telling you, somebody beats the daylights out of me and throws me in jail, you might not hear from me again for a while. I'm going to lay low. Well, what does Paul do? The very next town... Probably wounds still, you know, I don't know whether they bandaged them up or not. They may just put some ointment or something. I don't know. But he's, he's still bearing the march of preaching the gospel. He goes to the next town and he continues to do it. What made Paul do this? That was my thought this week. What would make Paul do that? What was the reason behind bold preaching? What made him continue to do what he was doing? Now, I can tell you it wasn't because the people in Thessalonica were going to be friendlier than the people in Philippi. Paul wasn't going, going, well, maybe these people in Thessalonica, they'll be nice people, and they'll just let me preach, and they'll feed me and have me over after church on Sundays, and they'll just take good care of me, and they'll love me. He was, that wasn't going to be the case. Paul knew that wasn't going to be the case. Paul says his ministry in Thessalonica was in the midst of what? Much opposition. Remember, we talked about Acts 17, and we're told there uh, what happened to Paul. They, they, they brought this mob together, and, and they were going to... They were going to come after Paul, but they couldn't find Paul. So what do they do? They go to one of the Christians' houses there, and they drag him out with some other Christians, and they take him before the, the authorities in town, and they accuse him of, of worshiping somebody besides Caesar. And Paul has to flee town again in the middle of the night. What was it that was so important that Paul would risk being beaten up again and thrown in prison? Look at verse 2. Paul understood that what he was preaching was, notice what it says there, the gospel of who? God. Paul preached something that was more valuable than his very own life. He preached the gospel of God. Can I tell you, you get beat up, thrown in prison, and you have to leave town, there's not but one thing that would give you boldness to go into the next town and do it again. That's to preach the gospel of the true and the living God. He preached the good news that God made a way through Jesus to redeem sinners. 
To turn people from idols to the true and living God. Now, if Paul was a deceiver, if he was in it for the money, I don't think Paul would go the route of suffering in order to gain money. Would you? Paul's willingness to preach in spite of persecution shows the genuineness of his ministry. And that's an example for you and I today. We preach the gospel of God. That's what our ministry as a church is built around, is the gospel of God. And we're willing to even suffer persecution for the gospel of God. Now, I'm not telling you to go out here today and look for persecution, okay? That's not what I'm saying. But you, you know as well as I do, we live in a time, and, and I know preachers have stood in the pulpit for years and said this, our world keeps getting worse and worse. What I'm saying to you, you heard 30 or 40 years ago in church, right? You heard the preachers say that. And I don't want to get into politics here, but this issue with guns, I'm all about the Second Amendment and you having your guns. I'm all about uh, having some gun control to keep people from running around killing people. But can I tell you, those things lead to other things. And you pay attention to what's going on in our world today. They'll take our guns one day, and I have three. I'm not, I could live with, it, with them, I could live without them. But when they begin doing that, then your God will come one day. And they'll try to take your God away from you. And you're going to have to preach the gospel. You're going to have to be faithful. There's going to come a time of persecution. It, it's already beginning to happen with all these things going on in the world today, around us. And it's going to continue to get that way. And Paul was preaching the gospel of God. Here's what I want us to understand. We need to understand that the gospel is whose gospel? Whose gospel is it? It's God's. Who does the gospel belong to? It belongs to God. It's His gospel. God planned this good news, and He's going to carry it out. That being the case, Paul wasn't free, neither are you and I, to change or modify the gospel. Let me ask you the question, who does the gospel belong to? God. It's His gospel. You and I don't have the liberty to change the gospel. Can I let you know something? The gospel doesn't need to be revised. It does not need to be changed. And we, we can't change it in spite of the idea that it may cost us something. Let me ask you this as a way of application. What would you be willing to do for the gospel of God? What would you be willing to do? Would you have boldness and courage to speak the gospel in the midst of opposition as Paul did? Would you be willing to do that? Would you be willing to speak the gospel... Let me ask you this way. Would you be willing to speak the gospel with boldness if you were in an easier position than Paul? Let me ask you that. That sounds a little bit better, right? Oh, I'm in an easier position, Paul. Sure, I can do that. I, I can do it. How about an easier position like your place of employment? Would you stand up for the gospel there? That's an easier position than Paul, right? How about as a student in the local high school or at the university? Would you be willing to stand up for the gospel there? Those are easier places than where Paul was at, right? You may be saying, I'm not good at evangelism. I, I, I know. I can read your minds right now. You know how I know that? Because that's what I used to say. I'm not good at that. I'm not good at talking to people. It scares me to death to talk to people. Doesn't it? It's okay. You can shake your head. It, it scares you to death to talk to people. That's something I'll leave to other people. 
Did you know that the Bible doesn't make that distinction? The Bible does not say share the gospel. It's just to be done by mature Christians who are not scared of people. You can't find that in the Scriptures. There are not some Christians who share the gospel and others... It's okay not to share the gospel. All Christians are called to share the gospel. All Christians are called to make disciples. And while disciples being made is more than just sharing the gospel, it doesn't include anything less than sharing the gospel. And my question for you this morning to think and ponder, will you stand up for the gospel? You're in an easier position than Paul is to share the gospel. This past summer, I've shared this with some of you, I did a, a mission trip to New Orleans, and uh, I, I led a team down there, and I had uh, some people who uh, wanted to share the gospel, but didn't really know how to, to do it as well as they'd like to. So I had four or five that went with me, and some of you have ever seen the story track that's just come out in the last few years? That's what we were using. I was training them how, how to use that track to share the gospel. Well, I had a particular young man with me named Jordan and his uh, now fiance, and they're about to get married. At the time, was his girlfriend. She, they came down. They were they were assigned to me, and so they followed me around. And I would share the gospel with people, and they would watch me. And after each encounter with someone, uh, they'd pull me over to the side and they'd say, "What about this? How do you do this? How do you do that? What if they say this?" And just man, they were asking me, and I was trying to train them. Well, it come down to the, toward the end of the week, and me and Jordan were together one night, and they sent us down next to the Superdome. Yeah, back in there, we were back there, and I shared the gospel, and he asked questions. He said, I think I'm ready. I said, all right. So we're leaving this street, and a guy comes out, and to make a long story short, Jordan was scared to death. And I don't remember the guy's name, but he had a Bible name. And when he said his name, Jordan looked at me, and I said, there's the door. It's open. And Jordan said, hey, you know your name comes from the Bible? He said, really? And so... He pulled that track out and he began to share the gospel with him. I'd shared gospel with about 50 people that whole week. And nobody repented and trusted in Christ. And Jordan said the gospel that one guy that night. He prayed to receive Christ right there on the street. The next night, his girlfriend and is with me and Jordan and another guy. And we say, you two are going by yourselves tonight. And they're looking at us like, I don't know about that. And they walk to one end of the park and we're watching them to make sure they stay safe. And we're watching. We can't hear a thing that's going on. And they stop a young man on the side of the road. And they're talking with him. Goes on for about 20 minutes, 25 minutes. And all of a sudden, the guy they're talking to jumps up in the air and throws his arms around. You know, I didn't have to run up and ask what happened. I knew what happened. Two people who went to a city that they knew nothing about, scared to death, knew that the gospel was important enough to share with people and get over their fears. And they've seen two people come to faith in Christ because they were willing to stand up and share the gospel with boldness. In verses 1 and 2, Paul gives us two proofs here that establish ministry as genuine. Ministry is genuine when it's not empty. That when their professions of faith, when people's lives are changed, when people are becoming disciples, and when the gospel is preached with boldness, in spite of opposition, that's a sign of genuineness of ministry. Notice in verses 3 and 4. We talk about the motives for ministry now. Paul's going to talk about the motives for ministry. Notice in verse 3. He says, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or an attempt to deceive. Notice the word that begins verse 3 is the word for. 
four indicates that Paul is about to give an explanation for why he kept preaching the gospel. If you're like me, and you've read this, and you're thinking, he's, getting beat, he's gotten beat up. Yes, he's preaching the gospel of God, but why would he continue to do this? Paul starts up in verse 3 by saying, what didn't motivate him? Let's talk about that. As you look at this verse, you need to ask yourself, why would Paul be saying these things? Here's what you do. You, you think in reverse. If Paul's saying he didn't act this way, apparently someone has said he did act this way. So he's defending himself. He's defending himself against what others say. Others were saying, Paul didn't teach you right. He taught you a bunch of error. What he taught you was not the truth. And Paul says, I didn't preach with impure motives. I didn't preach to deceive other people. Paul says his message was true. His motives were true. Think about it this way. It's difficult to imagine Paul would be willing to preach with boldness something that was wrong or deceitful knowing he was going to get beat up or put in prison for it. I've not said that once, but I want to make sure we understand that. Here's what I'm saying. A characteristic of false teaching is to shy away from suffering. That's what Paul is saying. False teaching, being deceitful or being error, people have a tendency to shy away from suffering. The false teacher isn't concerned about being faithful or protecting the truthfulness of the gospel message, but he's more concerned about altering the gospel so that he doesn't have to suffer, so that he gains approval of man. Now, without trying to be judgmental this morning, we see and hear this a lot of times on TV. There are those who will avoid preaching against sin. It sounds something like this. Well, I don't want to judge people. All I want to do is encourage people. There's a lot of people on TV that have that view. I just want to be positive. I just want to encourage people. Can I tell you there's a problem with that type of preaching? Preaching that doesn't warn people about the severity of sin. Preaching that doesn't warn people about God's wrath and God's judgment against sin. Preaching that doesn't call people to repent fails to proclaim the real gospel. Without these doctrines, you do not have the gospel of God. Whose gospel is it? It's God's gospel. We proclaim it. We don't alter it. We don't change it. We tell people the truth. And Paul's saying, look, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. Now, this type of preaching that you hear people talking about of encouraging people, can I tell you, it encourages people all right. It positively encourages them right into hell. That's what it does. You want to put smiles on people's faces? I don't want to send people to hell with a smile on their face. I want to tell them the truth of the gospel of God. This type of preaching tells people what they want to hear, not what they need to hear. But it also makes the person preaching this gospel popular in the eyes of others. And Paul says, that's not what I was doing. Look back to what happened to me in Thessalonica. I was once again beaten up and thrown in prison. I preached the gospel of God. Notice in verse 4, Paul talked about in verse 3 what didn't motivate him. But I think this here is the key part of what we're looking at today. Paul tells us what did motivate him to preach the gospel. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel... So we speak, now listen to what he says, not to please man, 
but to please God who tests our hearts. What motivated Paul to preach the gospel? There's four things here. Let's look at them. He says he was approved by God. Approved means you put something to the test, and as a result of that test, you say, yes, that's what I want. That's the right thing. In other words, it means to test and find something to be genuine. God knows the heart. He's tested and approved Paul to preach the gospel. God's approval was not Paul's to give to himself. And for that reason, listen carefully, and for that reason, the message, the gospel, is not Paul's to distort or to change or to revise or to take away from. Whose gospel is it? It's God's gospel. Second, notice that God entrusted Paul uh, with the gospel. He approved him. And then he entrusted him with the gospel. Can I tell you today, all of you sitting here today who have repented and put your faith in Christ, you're not pastors, you're not preachers, you're not evangelists, but God has approved you based on the work of Christ in your life and He has entrusted you with the gospel of God to proclaim. Third, notice Paul says, and here's the important part, so we speak not to please man, but to please who? God. God was the one Paul was trying to please and not man. Paul's not trying to please man. His goal is not to win popularity contests. Can I tell you today? I get myself in trouble here. Any preacher, if he really wants to be popular, he can be popular. He can change the gospel. He can make it sound smooth. And when you take out things like judgment and God's punishment of sin, people don't like that. Paul says he wasn't worried about being popular. He wasn't worried about pleasing man. His goal was to do what? Please God. Notice fourth there. Paul says, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who does what? What does God do? He tests the heart. Paul is out to please God because he knows that God is the one who tests the heart. Pleasing God is a fundamental rule for those who proclaim the gospel. It's also a fundamental rule of the Christian life. Can I tell you, the genuineness of your ministry as a servant in the church and the church as a whole is, are you doing what you're doing in order to please God? That's what it boils down to. Are we doing what we're doing here to please God? Paul says, I speak as a man who's been tested by God, I've been approved by God, I've been trusted by God, so therefore I'm going to do what? I'm going to seek to please God. God. Paul had a God-centered ministry. Pleasing God is what motivated Paul. Here's what I want you to do tomorrow when you wake up. As a believer, as a Christian, I want to please God today. Try that tomorrow morning when you wake up. Today, as a Christian, my goal is to please God and to honor God. Let's make one point of application here of this. One more point and we'll, we'll be done. Have you, have you ever been in a position of sharing the gospel and you felt that the person you were talking to wasn't very, rece- very receptive? You ever been there? I've been there. You're sharing the gospel, you're being faithful, and you sense like they're not liking this too much. They're not being real receptive to the gospel. So you're tempted to do what? Well, let's tweak it a little bit and make it a little more appealing. Maybe you leave out sin. Maybe you leave out God's judgment. Maybe you you leave those things out. Maybe you leave out the need to repent and you just tell them, just ask Jesus into your heart. 
Now, don't get me wrong. We do repent and ask Jesus to forgive us and put our faith in Him. But when we tell people all you need to do is ask Jesus in your heart, we leave out things like what? Repentance, turning from sin, the judgment of God if we don't do so. Have you ever had a desire to be a man pleaser? You're, going, you're a pastor, Gary. Don't be raising your hand. Hey, I get in that position. I, I, I want to please man. You want everyone to like you, right? Yes, you do. You want everyone to like you. You can't imagine the thought of someone not liking you, right? I think that Paul makes it clear here as to where our devotion should be. Our devotion belongs to who? God. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not going to try to make all of you mad. I want you to like me. I want everyone to like me just like you want everyone to like you. But when it comes down to the gospel, there's a line drawn in the sand, so to speak, where we have to please God and not please man. It's God we seek to please. Why? Because He's the one who tests, He's the one who examines our hearts. We don't change the gospel to make it more pleasant. A pleasant gospel will not bring, listen, a pleasant gospel won't bring dead men to life. Sinners are dead in their sin, and a pleasant gospel will not revive them. God's gospel is the only good news that can redeem a sinner. God's gospel is the only good news that can reconcile sinners. We preach God's gospel. We pray for people to come from being dead to being spiritually alive. We proclaim God's gospel. There is no other plan, folks. It's God's gospel. There's no other gospel. Our goal as a church is to preach, teach, and share the gospel of God. And what is our goal when we do that? To please God. Paul says, my ministry was genuine because I sought to please God. And here's what I want to say to us, church. I think we have a genuine ministry here. But you know what? If we're not careful, we get slack. The next thing you know, we're not pleasing God. Make our goal, Red Bud, to please God. And if our goal is to please God, then we will not alter the gospel. We'll keep preaching the gospel and proclaiming the gospel that dead men can hear the good news of Jesus Christ and come to faith in Him. Let's pray this morning.